It's good to be with you all again. Uh, we've come to love the people in Woodstock at the church plant, but it's always special to come back here after spending most of our years of ministry here in Virginia with you here in Winchester and miss you a great deal. And it's, uh, it's hard to leave. It really has been difficult uh, saying goodbye to uh, people here, but uh, I... We have two kids that live out here, so you haven't seen the last of us, um, Lord willing, and uh, we'll certainly make sure to stop in and even continue in some joint ministry together, too, that we're looking at as churches. But anyway, I just wanted to extend also, before we get into our passage for today, just a word of thanks on behalf of my wife and our whole family, actually. Uh, to you as a church, many of you uh, are aware that our daughter uh, was ill for the last six years. Uh, the first three were difficult. Um, the last two and a half were very difficult, and the last few months were extremely difficult. And you covered us in prayer, and I can't imagine having gone through this journey without the backing of Fellowship Bible Church. Uh, we received countless expressions of assurance of prayer. And, of course, our elders were so gracious to permit Patty and I to go to Omaha frequently to help our daughter and her family, support her husband, who so faithfully sacrificed for his wife. But we're grateful to all of you for that. And um, next week, we're going to be on the pulpit again, Lord willing. It'll be our last time with you. Uh, before we um, head out west. And um, we, uh, we welcome visitors. Kansas is a flyover state. Nobody wants to stop. And, uh, but uh, if you so dare to do so, we would love to host you and have you. Proverbs chapter 30, if you turn in your Bibles there, we'll look at that passage today in verses 24 through 28. And I'd like to read it, and then we'll have a word of prayer. As we take a look at the uh, verses and their applicability in our lives today. Proverbs chapter 30, verse 24 through 28. There are four things which are little on the earth, but they are exceedingly wise. The ants are a people not strong, yet they prepare their food in the summer. The rock badgers, some of your versions might say conies, they're a feeble folk, and yet they make their homes in the crags. The locusts have no king, yet they all advance in ranks. And the spider, which can also be translated as lizard, skillfully grasps with its hands, and it is in king's palaces. Let's bow for prayer. Father in heaven, thank you for the opportunity to meet together today as a part and portion of the body of Christ worldwide. And Father, we thank you for giving us your word and for the wisdom that we gain. For the truths of your word are transcendent above all time and cultures as applicable today as they were the thousands of years ago in which they were written. And I pray that your Holy Spirit will take your word 
instruct us, and change us from the inside out to conform us to the very image of the wisest king of all, the Lord Jesus Christ. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen. Yesterday, my daughter-in-law and a group of parents and children went to Leesburg to observe bees. They had been studying bees together, and now they were going to go on a little field trip to examine exactly some of the things that they had been studying. It's very good to observe the created order. I, uh, I remember watching a couple of those old moody science films and was fascinated about bees as they explained that the bees communicate with each other in the hives. They vibrate. And the amount of time in which they vibrate is communicating to the other bees the distance of the food source that that particular bee had discovered. Then that bee that is vibrating then points its body towards the direction where that food source is, and then everybody picks up the message and off they go to the same place. It's fascinating to observe God's creatures and what they do. I remember the salmon. Salmon go out to sea for, they spawn, they, or they, uh, they hatch, they're birthed in a sense, so they grow up, they go out to sea eventually following the rivers and the streams and finally get out into the ocean and then they are out there for seven years as they're out at sea in the salt water. But when it's time for them that their life is over and they're going to finish their life by spawning, they have to find the very waters that they hatched in themselves. They don't just hatch anywhere. They go back to the very location where they were hatched. And so they find those streams amongst all the thousands of streams and rivers along the coastline. The way that they find theirs is through smell. They smell the water, and they are able to pick up the smell of their hatching waters. And so they follow that so that as the smell of that water becomes stronger and stronger, they know they're on the right course, and eventually they find their stream, their place where they spawn, and then they end their life, they die. In fact, some salmon who are hatched in a salmon hatchery, they have found salmon trying to climb up four-inch PVC pipe, that is drainage pipe from the very pool in which those salmon had been hatched. Amazing. And of course, it gives all credit to the Creator. It's good to observe God's creation and His animals, and today we are going to enter in the observations of a man by the name of Agur. Agur observed four small creatures, but Agur leads us to learn big lessons. He observes these creatures, but he does something unique in a literary form is that he basically says two statements about each of the four creatures. They're all small, but they all have something that teaches us about wisdom. In fact, he says they are exceedingly wise. Now, he doesn't come to us and tell the application of each one and give that to us on a silver platter. He leaves the reader to contemplate what he said about each creature and for the reader to come to grips with what aspect of wisdom is this creature teaching us. 
But in his statements, he gives these little hints to point us in the right direction. Gives these little words that he includes in each one that points us into discovering the part of wisdom that is being imparted to us through the example of these four creatures. So let's begin as we look at these four, and we begin, first of all, with the ant. The ant, he says in verse 25, are not a people strong, yet they prepare their food in the winter or in the summer. You and I have, all of us, have seen ants, sometimes in places we don't want them to be. They're on our driveways, they're in our garages, and occasionally we see them on our kitchen counters. But they're always busy. They're always moving. They always have a, a purpose, it seems. They have a direction, a, a cause, and that cause is to be able to supply for their colony, to be able to uh, prepare for that time when their food source will no longer be available. So what they do is they store up food. And that's why they're so busy this time of the year. They're preparing for the day in which they're not going to have food available to them. You see, the opposite of summer, of course, is winter. And that's what's being implied in the passage. The summer is the word direct that is giving us direction to what aspect of wisdom the ant is teaching us. Because there comes a time when the essentials for life are no longer available and for life to continue, it's going to be dependent upon what has been stored, what has been prepared, what has been thought about in advance. And that is exactly what the ant teaches us is to prepare us to store resources that are essential for life when those resources are no longer readily available. Now certainly this has application to all of us as it relates to physical needs and financial needs. For example, Patty and I have been in Winchester nearly two decades and as I look at the pictures of when we moved here, my hair color was different than it is now. I'm getting more gray, getting older, and the reality of my earning power is starting to dawn on me. As I age and I think about the future and I think about Patty's needs and so forth, I, of course, I, I want to make sure that I think ahead, that things are prepared and be able to care for her and that we have the finances and even thinking about where she would live and that type of thing if God was to take my life or if both of us grow to elderly years that we have the resources that we need. That's wise to think about that. That's not a lack of faith. It's wisdom. You're raising kids and you realize they're not going to be around forever. You watch them grow up and they're growing up faster than what you thought they would and finally you come to smell the coffee and realize they may want to go to college in a few years, and you begin to prepare for that. You begin to save. You develop a plan. That's not lack of faith. It's wisdom. You realize that there's emergencies that show up in our lives. Cars break down. Transmissions break. Refrigerators go out. And 
we're told to have an emergency fund so that we can draw upon that resource when we need it. That's wisdom. That's following the way of the ant. But we would be remiss if we stopped there. We would be remiss if we didn't realize that this wisdom goes on to teach us not only about physical and financial preparedness, but spiritual preparedness. Developing a way in which we are storing up spiritual resources for the times that we need them. And especially during difficult times when the winter comes into our lives. And winter can be nasty. But the resources that are built up in advance can be drawn upon during winter. When that illness comes into your family, when that job is lost, when those trials and hardships of life come our way. Proverbs even teaches in chapter 1 that unless a person gains wisdom when they have opportunity, it's too late to call upon her when the need is there, but the preparedness wasn't. The spiritual resources that we store up for those times, what are they? Well, first of all, obviously it's the truth of God's Word. One of the great spiritual resources that we have is to be able to draw upon promises that give us the perseverance to persevere, <laughs> give us the perseverance to move on, give us the faith to find comfort and strength and courage. Those resources are essential for taking the next step in life when winter hits hard and hits oftentimes without warning. To be a diligent student of God's Word, not only in your personal study, but preparing spiritual resources by attending church and hearing the Word of God taught. Attending classes or other opportunities by which the Word of God is becoming more and more and more an integral part of your inner being because when you need those truths, you'll need them badly and you'll need them quick. You'll need them immediately. And people that follow the wisdom of the ant have to draw on. Time in prayer, communicating with God, so that when you have the winter hit, you're not having to get reacquainted with him. You've already been in his room on a daily basis and you know each other well. That's a spiritual resource by which you draw upon when winter hits. One that oftentimes gets overlooked, however, is each other. How God channels and uses his people as an avenue to bring encouragement and hope to people who are experiencing winter. But you have to build those relationships ahead of time. You can't lead a solo life and then all of a sudden expect God's people to be jumping in who don't even know you or you know them. Proverbs says it's foolishness for a man to isolate himself 
He goes against all wise judgment, Proverbs says. I hear, and I think it's true, women tend to have closer relationships with other believers more than men do. I can't tell you how many men throughout the 40 years of the pastoral ministry I've been in that will say, I really don't have a good close friend that I can, that I can be real with and unload everything about my life. And they can do the same with yourself. Well, folks, that's a spiritual resource that oftentimes gets undermined, but boy, when winter hits, it can be lifeblood. People that do life with you and you with them and you pray for each other and you care for each other and you minister to physical needs, sometimes financial needs, but that support during the times of winter all comes about because there's preparedness. You become part of a group of Christians on a more personal level. A small group or just a friendship that you're developing with other believers that the example of the ant. One day, when we were in Omaha, evil was so present in the house, you could just sense it. It's a day that I will never forget. Eight adults came into that house because of this and surrounded our daughter's bed as our be daughter was being tormented with doubts, fearing that the day she dies, there'll be nothing and nobody, that she'll just go into an abyss of darkness and it was so obvious to all of us that there was these satanic darts that were being aimed at the depths of her heart, causing doubt and fear. She was extremely expressive and extremely distraught. We covered her bed. Pat and I bowed at her bed. We were praying. At one point in this journey, she said to me, Dad, how do I know it's true? Well, folks, I've said a lot of dumb things in my life, but this was not one of them. I immediately responded to her and I said, the resurrection. If he didn't rise from the dead, this is all bogus. But if he did, it's all true. Well, in due time, God delivered her from the darts of the enemy. And Patty and I were with her to her last breath. She died in faith. She died in peace. When that experience happened, I thought to myself, if I'm in that situation and the enemy's darts come flying, will I be able to stand? My Dallas Seminary degree isn't going to make me stand. My experience in the pastorate isn't going to make me stand. The Apostle Paul says this concerning the flaming darts of the enemy. He says, having done all to stand, stand firm, as he describes the armor of God 
that armor is done in preparation before the battle, not during the battle. And I began to think, what if I start doubting the resurrection of Jesus when the darts become flaming in one after another from the enemy of our soul, who has no mercy, by the way. Saw that firsthand. Motivated me to pick up a, a book. A book by the name of The Bedrock of Christianity. What an appropriate title. On the resurrection of Jesus... I read it thoroughly, not because I don't believe in the resurrection, but because I wanted it to become even more firm in my heart so that when the evil day comes, I can stand. That's what the ant teaches us. To be prepared for when winter comes. Well, the rock badger has something to teach us too. The rock badger, don't think it's like a badger here in America. Those badgers in America are mean and able to protect themselves, but a rock badger, nah. uh I've seen rock badgers numerous times when we go to Israel. Down in the Judean wilderness, there's one particular stop at Ein Gedi that we are able to see ibex, but we can also look around and see these little rock badgers. They're cute little things. They're not dangerous. They're not even the size of a Virginia groundhog. But um, they run around and they're kind of quick. But they are not strong. They're feeble. They're weak. They don't have claws to defend themselves. They don't have sharp teeth. There's only one thing that they have to defend themselves from predators as eagles are flying around looking for lunch or other animals that would find a delicious rock badger a good thing. What these rock badgers have for their defense are the rocks themselves. They go into the crevices as these rocks are there, especially at the base of these Judean mountains of the desert. It's very dry and arid, and they're able to come into those small little crevices between rocks, and they get in there, and then there's dens inside where they can hide and stay safe. And the predators can't get in there. They want to get in there, but they can't. And they can't move the rocks. They're too big, and they have to give up. But the rock badger knows that. And the rock badger sees as its defense the necessity of staying close. Don't wander too far from the rocks. <laughs> because when danger comes, you need to be close enough to make it in there before the predator strikes. The rock badger knows not to put itself into vulnerable situations. When we moved here to Virginia from North Dakota, we had lived in Dallas for four years back in the late 70s, but kind of forgot what city life was like. And Well, in North Dakota, there's more people in a 40-mile radius of Winchester than there is in the whole state of North Dakota. And we lived in the western side, which was even less populous than the eastern side. And when we moved here, Brad was our son, Brad, youngest. He was a sophomore in high school, and he invited a couple of his friends from North Dakota to come visit. And I said to him before they came, I said, do you think they'd like to go see a major league baseball game? Go see the big time? Oh, yeah, that'd be great. So I bought tickets to go see the Orioles. 
And these people arrived, and we got in the car, and we drove to Baltimore. We began getting closer to Camden Yards, to the baseball field, and I was looking for a place to park, and 20 bucks. And I thought, 20 bucks to park your car? Then I saw another group a little farther away said, 10 bucks. Well, that's better. But then there was a sign that said, five bucks. Well, now you're talking. But that was quite a ways away from the ball field. And it was under a viaduct, under an overpass. But hundreds of people were driving down there to pay the $5 parking and willing to walk the distance. We found a parking spot and got out. We started walking up towards the field just like everybody else. Hundreds of people getting out of their cars, cars all over the place. Walk up, got into the stadium, watched the ball game. About the end of the sixth inning, and I know this is going to shock you, the Orioles were uh, getting plastered. <laughs> it was well over 10 run lead by the opponent and people started leaving. And as I was watching them exiting the ball field, I thought to myself, these kids get to see one ball game, maybe they're for years to come, and we're going to stay for the whole nine innings. So we did. But as the game kept going on, more and more and more people were exiting the ball field. I wasn't thinking about the results of that because when the ball game ended at 11 p.m. we began walking towards our car and there was only one car left under that overpass and it was way down there and it was 11 o'clock at night in Baltimore Maryland and immediately I thought this is not safe we are in a vulnerable situation. Now, I did something that you're all going to laugh at. I took my keys out and put one key in between each finger. So I thought if I get one punch in, at least it's going to be a good one. And I told those kids, I said, you guys, let's keep walking, walking fast, go right to that car. And I had that all mapped out, had the key ready to unlock the car, get in that thing, get out of there, and which we did, and there was no incident. But I realized I was in a vulnerable spot. The Rock Badger teaches us to see ahead and to avoid those vulnerabilities so that we can protect ourselves from vulnerable situations. You see, the Rock Badger shows its strength by knowing its weakness. Let me say that again. It's a strength to know your weakness. And that's what the Rock Badger teaches us. I don't remember if it was a wedding or a graduation or what it was, but there was some kind of an event that a number of us had been invited to to celebrate, and an individual called me up on the phone and said, hey, are you going to that, are you going to go to that event? Yeah. Think there's going to be alcohol there? I don't know. Maybe. I don't know. Why? Well, I'm a recovering alcoholic, and I can't be close to it. Well, good for you. Good for you. Because a sign of strength is to know your weakness. 
Jerry Jenkins, the father of Dallas Jenkins, who has been the producer of this very popular production called The Chosen, which I love, by the way. But Jerry, his father, wrote a book called Hedges, and it's a book on teaching men and women how to protect themselves from infidelity how not to put yourself in vulnerable situations that could be the next stepping stone towards unfaithfulness to your spouse. Who you eat lunch with and who you don't and who you talk at the water cooler with and who you don't and when you do talk, what kind of questions you ask and what kind of questions you don't ask. That's the rock badger. Sign of strength is to know your weaknesses and to not put yourself in vulnerable situations. 1 Timothy 6.11 tells us to flee these things, and you're going to think, oh, I bet you Paul is talking to Timothy about fleeing sexual temptation. No, if you look at the context, it's not in there. He's talking about fleeing coveting, learning to be content with what we have, fleeing the desire to have more than what God has given us, it's a sign of strength when you know your weakness and to go away from that which is going to cause your spirit to become discontent. Some of you who took classes from me over the years probably remember this, but for those of you that don't, in Iowa we have a fair, county fair, called the Clay County Fair because it's so well known because it's one of the largest county fairs in the United States. Patty and I were there one day, and we were looking around at various displays and so forth, and there was a home builder that had four houses that he had transported onto the fairgrounds because he built a stick house, but he had the ability to move those homes to the location of the buyer. So he took four, four homes that he had built, brought them to the fairgrounds for people to tour them and to see their layout and their floor plan and all this and that. And I said, honey, let's go look at those houses. I don't see those houses. No, thanks. Well, don't you want to come? Come with me and look at the house? Uh-uh. Well, go ahead. I'll meet you later. Well, why don't you want to go? And I'll never forget her saying this. She said, because when I do it, I become dissatisfied with the house that I have. She knew her weakness. And that was her strength. That's what the rock badger teaches us. Not to put ourselves in situations where we're prone to physical or spiritual danger, but to protect ourselves and to stay close to the rock and his commands how to do that the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, the ant teaches us to be prepared and the rock badger teaches us to be cautious. But the locusts teach us to be cooperative. Look with me at verse 27. The locusts have no king. The king is kind of that pointing towards the item of wisdom that he wants us to know. They have no king yet they all advance in ranks. 
Well, back to our North Dakota days, we experienced one summer something that I'm glad we did, but it was not fun at the time, and that is we had a grasshopper plague. There wasn't a bush. There wasn't any shrubbery. There wasn't any gardens that had a leaf left on them. As you walked across your own yard during that period of drought, you could hear and feel the grass brown, crunching under your feet, and waves of grasshoppers going ahead of you. It lasted all summer long, well into the fall, and the football players of the high school, as they began their two-a-days in August, when they were on the ground, the grasshoppers would crawl up into their helmets, and they'd have to take their helmets out and brush them away and scoop out the grasshoppers. It was unbelievable, but the devastation that can happen in such a limited time is it's remarkable. The impact that they have as a team. Locust plagues happen in the world yet to this day. But there's something positive that we can learn from their teamwork. And that is teamwork has great impact. As they go out in their ranks, the ancient sage says, they're having a great impact, but they do so without a king. What's being implied? I think what's being implied is they don't have anybody to give them orders. Their cooperation together is all they need that they don't need command from anybody else because of the power of synergism, the power of togetherness, the power of teamwork. I like to go to baseball games, and I've been watching a couple of the uh, Valley League games here in the area. These are college kids from all around the country that play in this 11-team league here in the Shenandoah Valley. It's a great night. It's only 5 bucks and $2 hot dogs. It's a great evening out. 22 players in the major leagues last year had played in this Valley League. These are kids that want to get seen. They play hard. They're hoping that there's a scout present in those bleachers watching them. They want to go for the big time. So it's fun to go watch them. They play their hearts out. I was at a game not too long ago, and I was on the right field line, just a little past first base, and the guy hit the ball and went right between the first and second baseman, line drive, landed in the first part of the outfield, and then was rolling strong, and the right fielder went up to scoop it up and to throw to second base to keep the runner at first, and the right fielder scooped and missed. And the ball kept rolling on. Everybody just stood there. Center fielder just stood there. The man ran around the bases, hit an in-park home run. The manager came out screaming at his players. Ran out to center field and said, why didn't you back him up? Why didn't you get that ball? And the center fielder said, because nobody told me to. Well, folks, the hit and the miss was all true. The rest was fictitious because here's what did happen. That center fielder was already behind that right fielder when that right fielder missed the ball. 
And he backed him up, and he got that ball, and he winged that thing to second base because he was going to cover for the mistake of his teammate because those players have learned to work as a team. They cooperate with each other. You see, my friends, in life we're all part of teams. If you're married, you and your spouse are a team. You probably have opportunities to be a part of a team at work, maybe a committee, or you're working with other coworkers. You work in various different kinds of contexts in life, and wisdom realizes this. Wisdom learns from the locust and says, we have more power if we work as a team than if we work as a combination of individuals. As we bring that synergistic power together and back each other up and don't need to be commanded to do so, we don't need a king to tell us to back us up. It's like the person walking across the parking lot and sees a bag of McDonald's trash that somebody dumped out or threw out on Middle Road and people say, well, I hope the custodian sees that on Monday. Larry Mendoza will pick it up. No, it's the person that says, hey, I'm a part of this church. I'm going to go pick that trash up and walk over and get dumped where it should be. That's what wisdom does. Wisdom doesn't have to be told to participate as a team because they're always looking how they can work with the team, how they can back each other up, work together, not have individual agendas, but seek to come to a cooperation because the locusts teach us to be cooperative. Boy, I sure hope the pastors go visit that person in the hospital. Well, maybe they will, but how about the person who knows about it first. That's teamwork. Be cooperative, the locusts say. And finally, we have the lizard. This is a difficult one to understand, but I think the key word is skillful. When I was in Brazil, invited to speak there, I was sitting in the living room one night as dinner was being prepared, and the other missionaries are standing around, and I saw a lizard go walking up the wall and hid behind a picture, and I go, hey, there's a lizard! And they all started laughing. They see hundreds of them every day. In fact, I went to bed that night, laid down, reached over to the lamp table and the lamp on it to turn it off, and there's a lizard looking right at me, 12 inches from my eyes. I said, don't you dare. They get in places that other people can't go to. They get in places that dignitaries can't even get to. They can go into king's palaces. They have ways of finding themselves into places that of high importance. The lizards, by their skill, can do that. Proverbs 14 says, Have you seen a man skilled in his work? He will stand before kings and not before unknown men. I think what we learn from the lizard is to put your best foot forward, to pursue excellence, to be purposeful, to be an individual that 
maximizes the God-given skills and abilities that you have and let God take it from there of how he wants to use you and where he wants to use you. Not to be lazy or to put it aside. The Bible says in Colossians chapter 3, to work heartily as unto the Lord, not with just eye service when your master is looking, but when they're not looking, because it is the Lord who's watching, that you serve him with diligence and to honor him. And then he says, and it is from him that you will receive the reward of the inheritance. I know of a man who, his education is good, but it's not impressive. Doesn't have a PhD, just, got a good education, but as a man who loves Jesus and a man who loves his word, this guy started investing his attention into the scriptures and over the period of years and even decades, he became very skilled in the scriptures. He became very skilled in handling them and how to interpret them and how to study them and how to do word studies. And he became very skilled. Comes from a very modest background. But there was an attorney that comes out of the Washington, D.C. area that heard about this man and saw this man's skill at work and approached him and said, I'd like to ask you to do some work. This man actually is hired by various organizations around the country and his firm to write briefs that go into the hands of Supreme Court members in order to give a persuasive argument on a case in the direction that he's hired to do. And he asked this man, would you, would you see if there's anything in the scriptures that address that issue? And numerous times over the years, this man was able to look at the case, look at the scriptures, and to see if he could accurately and not take out of context if the Bible addresses the subject and write things up and numerous times some of these thoughts were inserted into these briefs that went into the offices of Clarence Thomas and John Roberts and he doesn't know how impactful it was or wasn't but I had a man in Woodstock say about this individual do you see a man skilled in his work? He will stand before kings and not before unknown men. But folks, you may say, I'm not ever going to be presenting something to the Supreme Court or the President of the United States or any congressional member. Maybe so. But you are going to stand before the king of all kings because he's the one that we ultimately work for. And there is a day that each of us are going to stand before him and part of our assessment from him is working heartily before him. Three men were cutting stone to make stones for building. They were all doing the same thing. And... Um, Another individual came up to them. They're all doing the same work and says to the first man, what are you doing? Cutting stone. <laughs> goes to the second man, what are you doing? 
making a living. Went to the third guy and said, what are you doing? I'm building a cathedral. You see, he saw his work as a part of something bigger. And today I say to that homemaker, what do you do? Laundry. To another homemaker of the same kind, what are you doing? Raising kids. Go to a third, what are you doing? I'm making disciples for Jesus Christ. What do you do? Making a living. What do you do? Oh, I'm an electrician. I bring light and power into people's homes and businesses. What do you do? Oh, when I'm bringing light and power into people's homes and businesses, I'm bringing the light and power of Jesus Christ to my fellow employees and to the people that hire us. That's what we learn from the lizard. That their skills are used in ways above and beyond what they could ever dream. And we will see that ultimately when we stand before the King of Kings. From the ant, be prepared. From the rock badger, be cautious. From the locust, be cooperative. And from the lizard, be purposeful. My job is done this morning in sharing with you, but your job is to go home and contemplate even more. Where does God want me to be more like the ant and the rock badger and the locust and the lizard? And you will be exceedingly wise just like them. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for the opportunity to be together and to learn from these small creatures big lessons by the inspiration of your Holy Spirit. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.